Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Christian Church Podcast. Rocky is a community of believers who want to know Jesus and love like Him. Let's take a listen to this week's message. Amen. Amen. Church, good to see you. Good all of you, see all of you here at NIWAT. You guys are out there, right? You good? Yeah, it's good. Frederick Campus, great to have you there with us today. And our online campus, great to have all of you. And uh, it's a big weekend, man. It's Memorial Day. It's kind of a three, four-day weekend this weekend, so I'm excited about that. But I do think we need to just pause for a second and just remember what Memorial Day is all about. It is just the remembrance that freedom is not free, right? That it comes at a cost. And there are many people who have paid that cost for our freedom. Franklin Delano Roosevelt says this, those who have long enjoyed such privileges as we enjoy forget in time that men have died to win them. And so amidst your celebration, I would encourage you just to remember um, what it costs for us to be free and to be able to worship today. I also think, you know, celebration this weekend, it's a big weekend because it's graduation weekend. And I don't know if you looked around social media and that, but we have like a million graduates in our church this year, and I'm super excited for them. So let's give it up, all three campuses for them. Let them know how proud we are, not just of the graduates, but of the parents getting the graduates through to graduation. That's good. That's where the real uh, work starts now, but uh, super excited for all of you and looking forward to seeing what God does uh, too in your life for sure. And I'm pretty pumped and excited because I get to baptize my youngest boy today. And so that's super cool. Really excited about that. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get to John chapter 8. And as Amanda said, we're going to wrap up this series called Less is More. And what we've been talking about is been talking about this idea that there are some commandments that Jesus gives in Scripture where he looks at crowds of people and he says, if you will do less of this, you will actually get more of what you're looking for. So we talked about less fear equals more courage and more confidence. More courage and more confidence in life. Less doubt equals more certainty, which I think in times like today, man, we are all looking for more certainty in our life. And probably the biggest one we've talked about so far is this idea of less worry brings more peace. And I think we're all looking for peace. Now you wonder what today is gonna be. I'm not gonna tell you yet. Right, I'm not going to get to that one because when you really step back into it, we'll get to that in a minute, but this one might be the one that's the most misused, the most twisted of Jesus' commandments. When it talks about these commandments that are do this, like worry not, fear not, doubt not, this one is misused even still today by Christians. Now, if you think about it, when you go back to Jesus' original audience, his original audience in the first century, so much different than we are today. Like when Jesus looked at them, he said, fear not, doubt not, worry not. Most of them looked back in him and said, Jesus, fear not, doubt not, worry not? How am I supposed to worry not when I'm sitting here today wondering where I'm going to get meals for my family tomorrow? That was just the reality that they lived in. You and I today, we don't worry about that. We have bigger worries in other areas, but in those kind of things, every day needs to take care of our family. We, we don't usually worry about those things as much. So when those people looked at Jesus pre-cross and pre-resurrection, those commandments were so unrealistic. Like, Jesus, how do you even command that? Are you looking around? Are you seeing the same thing? We're seeing all of this difficulty. How do you say, worry not? Now, then Jesus died. And then he rose again on the third day. And all of a sudden, what seemed so unrealistic to all his disciples and all of his followers, all of a sudden seemed pretty realistic. Like when a guy predicts his own death, dies, and then raises from the dead, predicts his death and resurrection, and pulls it off, there's not much in this world that's not possible. 
And so all of a sudden, those people looked at that, those commands and said, hey, Jesus, game on. Let's go for this. And it transformed a group of followers that transformed a nation, that transformed a world. And we sit here today, but I would say that today, as I said, is probably the most difficult and most twisted of all Jesus' commands. It's a command that you've heard said on stages like this throughout your life. But you've probably heard it with a pre-death and pre-resurrection tone. A tone that seems very condemning. A tone that seems very condescending. Not a tone that seems inviting. But I think what we'll see today is in Jesus' response to a certain person in Scripture, we'll see that that tone after the death and resurrection has a totally different feel. Now here's what you need to understand about John 8. John 8 starts off at the temple. It's very interesting to understand this happens at a certain location on the Temple Mount. Now, two years ago, I got to take a group of people from here to go to Jerusalem, to go to Israel. And we saw all the sites and we wrapped up the last day in Jerusalem. And we came off the Mountain of Olives and this is the picture you see. This is the picture that you see. When you walk off the Mount of Olives, you see the Temple Mount surrounded by the Temple walls, surrounded by the Temple steps. And then inside of those walls on top now is about a 30 acre space that now is filled with a few holy sites of Muslim holy sites and Jewish holy sites. Now back then there was the whole temple, there was the Holy of Holies, there was all of that, but now you look and you see the Dome of the Rock, you see a place called the Dome of the Chain, which you probably haven't heard as much about. Um, there's, a few, there's a Muslim mosque there that each day they have their call to prayer and they have their worship services on top of the Jewish temple site. And then outside of those walls, and one of those walls is called what we know as the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall where Jewish people will gather. And we were there on a Friday night, the Sabbath, and man, it was intense. There were so many people there. I walked past this little cart that had the little yarmulkes, the little hats on it. And I walked by with my bald head and didn't grab one of those hats. And one of these old men, he was like, get your butt back here and get one of these on right now. now he didn't say it in English like that. He said it in something else. But I understood very clearly that this was a Jewish holy site, and I was unwelcome there at the time as they were preparing for the Sabbath. And you think about today and all the contentiousness of Muslims on top of the site worshiping and their calls of prayers and Jewish people down near that Western wall, which they believe is the closest point to the actual temple building. It's one of the most contentious places in history, but in Jesus' day, in Jesus' day, it was like the center point of God's activity. Like it was the center point of where God would come together with man and this is the place at the temple where this story will happen today. Now more specifically, it happens at the southern steps. So the southern steps of the temple, there's a southern wall and that southern wall is about 900 feet long. The southern steps are about 260 feet long. And there are these kind of awkward, large steps. They're about seven to 10 inches high, but they're about 36 inches deep. And so it's almost awkward to walk up these steps. And they go from down here in the valley all the way up to the entrance there of what was a gate that entered right into the temple. And so the Jewish people would come. And they would come there on a daily basis. People would come, and they would come there so many times throughout their life. Come with a sacrifice or come to buy a sacrifice. They would walk up the southern steps. They would come through a gate. They would come into the gate uh, to the court of the Gentiles. They would go through another gate to the court of the women. They would go through another gate and they would open up into an area where there was a massive altar. They bought their sacrifice out here. 
They brought their sin to the temple. They'd walked up the steps into the temple through the gates with their sacrifice, presenting it to the priest. The priest would sacrifice that. And in the presence right there in that area of the court would be the Holy of Holies. Where it's believed that God's presence actually dwelt. In the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle. In the New Testament, it was the temple, but it was the most holy place, a building within the building that represented God's presence. And Jews would walk in with their sin, walk in with their sacrifice up those stairs and hand that sacrifice to to the priest. And then the priest would sacrifice that and then they would walk down the stairs being absolved of their sin. They had gone up and down those stairs in and out of those courts so many times. That place right there, that stairway was almost their stairway to heaven. And up those stairs and right inside that court is where this story happens today. John chapter 8, starting verse 2, it says this. It says, early in the morning, he, or Jesus, came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down, and he began to teach them. So it's interesting. Early in the morning, that was Jesus' custom. He would either go out early in the morning to pray, or he would go to the synagogue, or he would go to the temple to teach. On this day, he walks up the southern steps, goes through that gate, and the people were waiting for him because this is far into his ministry. And so the people were waiting and saying, man, this Jesus guy, he raises people from the dead. He heals people. He teaches incredible things. So they would be waiting at the temple steps for Jesus to show up, for him to go up into the temple. The crowd followed him in, and they sat down and began to listen to him. Verse 3 says, the teachers of the law, the bad guys, they show up. It says, the teacher of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And here's the interesting thing I don't think we catch about this story. We step back into the story. It says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who was caught in adultery. They bring her early in the morning. The thing I don't think we think about many times is like, where was the woman all night? Now, we know she was doing something she wasn't supposed to be doing all night. But when did she get caught? The probability was that she got caught somewhere in the middle of the night. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, what they didn't do is they did not take her to the priest. They didn't take her to the ruling court. They didn't take her to any of the authorities. What they did was they sat on this situation and held her for the most opportune time. You see, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, what they should have been concerned about was the law. The law had been broken. So what do we do with this woman? Who do we take her to? We should take her to the authorities right now. But they didn't because they had an agenda. And the agenda was not the welfare of the woman. Verse 4. Listen to the humiliation. It says, they made her stand before the group, the crowd, and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I mean, catch this. This wasn't rumor. Like, this had happened. And she had been caught in the act, caught red-handed. She was caught in the act of adultery. And she was not only caught disobeying the law, she was caught disobeying one of the top ten of the laws. Right? In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, in the Ten Commandments, it says, Thou shalt not commit what? Adultery. She's not only caught disobeying one of the top ten, she's caught disobeying one of the top two or three that you remember in the top ten, right? Like if I asked you, give me the Ten Commandments right now, you'd probably shuffle around and you could remember, and don't lie. Maybe like, don't, don't take God's name in vain. That's a good one. I should remember that one, right? right? I should remember that one. 
don't commit adultery. Like we remember that one. And this woman had been caught red-handed in her sin and she was not where she wanted to be. She had traveled those steps right up into God's presence, into the temple, to the sacrificial area, to the altar. She had brought her sacrifices to sacrifice for her sin. As Andy Stanley says it, I love his line, he says, but in this moment, she felt like she was getting ready to be sacrificed for her sin. Man, you can just picture it. Teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they've been waiting for the moment to just create a moment to cross question with Jesus. And so they bring her in and I imagine they brought her exactly as they found her. Exactly as they found her for, for effect to walk in and to throw her in front of the crowd and throw her in front of Jesus. And this says, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say, Jesus? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. And what Jesus could have said to this moment is he could have said, well, what are you doing here? Like if she's caught red-handed, and if she's guilty, and if you know what the law is, why are you standing here? Why aren't you outside the city walls? Why aren't you down in the valley down there where they do this thing? And why aren't you just rearing back and throwing and stoning this lady? That's what he could have said. What he should have said was this. He should have said, hey, you experts in the law. Andy Stanley calls them the God squad. I like that. Hey, you experts in the law. Hey, you God squad. Didn't the the law of Moses actually say this? Leviticus 20 verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress should be put to death. So let's see, guys. Like who's missing from this picture, right? Like where's the man? Like if the law of Moses said the woman caught in adultery, then you caught the woman and you've got the man somewhere. What's going on with this situation? But here's the thing. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the teachers, the experts in the law didn't care about the law in this moment. The only thing that they seemed to care about in this moment was putting Jesus on trial in the court of public opinion. And so they set up the moment and the moment was perfect because what they knew is that they were pitting Jesus against all the things in their traditions, all the things in their background, all the things in their Old Testament law that the people held valuable. Jesus is sitting there in their most sacred place. They've walked right up those stairway, that stairway into the presence of God. And with God there, With the law, they could walk right through the different gates, right into the Holy of Holies. They could grab the law, the original law, and say, Jesus, here's what it says. And here's what they were doing. They were taking Jesus and pitting Jesus versus the law. Jesus versus Moses. Jesus versus the temple. Jesus versus the whole sacrificial system. And they're saying, Jesus, what are you saying? Are you gonna say right here, Are you going to say that you have a different way or are you going to acknowledge the law and are you going to stand true to the law? Because what they knew is if Jesus went against the law, if Jesus went against Moses in this moment, if he gave any daylight, what he'd lose was the popularity and the connection with the people. They weren't concerned with the welfare of the woman. They weren't concerned with the guilt of the woman. They weren't even concerned with the law. Their concern was turning the crowd against Jesus. And so the real question was, Jesus, are you greater than all these things? Verse six, it goes on and Jesus stoops down. So how does Jesus respond? 
How's Jesus respond in this moment? Like, is it, I, don't, I don't think we can capture the drama that's actually going on in this moment. If you just close your eyes and you set yourself in the moment, you can see the woman being thrown down. You can see just the awkwardness and, and the rawness of, of the moment, and you can grab up some of that drama, but I don't think not knowing and not understanding all that goes along with the law, all that goes along with the temple and, and where they actually are, I don't think there's anything I can say that actually captures the drama of this moment, and what does Jesus do? Verse six says, but Jesus stooped down with his finger and he wrote in the ground. And I don't know if this has any significance, but we're talking about the law here. She broke one of the 10 commandments. And if you go back in the 10 commandments, when the 10 commandments were given to Moses, what the people believed and what Moses said, what scripture says is that God etched the words of the 10 commandments in the stones with what? His finger. And Jesus bends down and begins to write on the stones in the dust of the stones of the temple. He begins to write. And we have no idea what he writes, but he just lets the moment sit. And the people see him writing. And no longer is this Jesus against the Ten Commandments. No longer is this Jesus against the law, Jesus against the temple. This is actually Jesus versus the finger of God. Like, Jesus, who are you? What are you doing? Who are you saying you really are? And Jesus gave them time, and the scripture says that they persisted, and they persisted, and they persisted, and what Jesus gave them time to do is in the very location of where they had brought their sin, he allowed their self-righteousness to be exposed. It says, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up, he stood up, and he looked at the crowd, and I can imagine he just paused for a moment. And just let it sit, and then he looked them in the eye, and he said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then what did he do? Again, he stooped down, and he began to write in the sand. See, I think Jesus in that moment was saying, guys, let's, let's not forget where we are. Like, let's not forget this moment that we are standing in the most holy place in the world. We are standing in the temple. Right past that gate right there is the holy of holies, the presence of God. You have walked up these steps. You've walked up these steps so many different times with your sin. You've walked up those steps with your sin, with your sacrifice. You've gone into that room and been absolved of your sin and the penalty of it. And then you've walked down those steps and you have dragged a woman here in her sin and you have condemned her when God has not condemned you. See, there was one man among them that had no sin. But the interesting thing is he was the only man among them that had no stone. See, all those men, all those teachers of the law, all those experts in the law had come with this woman looking to capture and trap and set Jesus up. And they walked in with stones ready to stone this woman. And Jesus, who is God, was the only one. Jesus, who ultimately back in the Old Testament gave the law and gave the law, do not commit adultery. Jesus, the one who's standing there, is the only one who doesn't have a stone. He exposed their self-righteousness, and here's the reaction, verse 9. It says, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones first, the ones who had made that trip the most times. And he was left alone, and the woman 
where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. And I think that's one of the most tender moments in scripture. And Jesus would have been in his right to say, well, stone her. Jesus would have been in his right, said, okay, follow me. Let's go down those steps and let's go right outside the city and let's do this, let's stone her. But he looked at this woman with compassion and he said to her, he said, is there anybody else here to condemn you? Now he didn't say to her, is there anybody else here to accuse you? She'd already been accused. Is there anybody else here to to question your guilt? She'd already been proven guilty. He's saying, is there anybody else here that's gonna make you pay for something you deserve? And she said, no. And then the God of the universe, Jesus, who we know is the God of the universe, looked at her and said, then neither will I. I will not make you pay for something that you actually did and deserve to receive punishment for. And I think in that moment, what we capture is we capture this tone that I think most of us have spent our life missing and thinking that when we sin and when we mess up and when we have these things in our life, whether it be adultery, whether it be dishonesty, whether it be lust, whether it be pornography, whether it be whatever it is, we have these moments where we feel like God is looking down at us and he is condemning us. And what Jesus said to this woman, he says, then neither do I condemn you. And then he says what I think every single one of us want to hear from God. He says to them, he says, neither do I condemn you. And I think he says what we need to hear. He says, go now and sin no more. You see, in that moment, what Jesus did is Jesus made his point. And maybe not to the crowd and maybe not to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but to the woman who was caught in her sin, he said, you've traveled these steps so many times. You've brought your sin with you so many times. You've brought your sacrifice so many times. And in this moment, man, you were more aware in this moment of your sin than any other time in your life. And you were more aware of the need for or the possibility of condemnation than any other time in your life. And what Jesus said in that moment is he said, yeah, Moses would have condemned you. The law would have condemned you. The temple sacrificial system would have condemned you. The Old Testament law would have condemned you. But me, I'm greater than those things. And I'm bringing a different way and a different tone and a different way of operating. And I want you to know that I do not condemn you. You see, Jesus' tone was not one of condemnation. Jesus' tone was one of compassion. When it came to sin, Jesus' tone was one of compassion. And that may not be the tone that you're usually used to. You've heard sermons like this preached from pastors in your past. You probably had churches who have talked about this. And the tone that you get is this tone of condemnation of you need to turn from your sin because you are bad and you need to be better. The tone of Jesus was not condemnation. The tone of Jesus was compassion and it was urging. You see, Jesus urged her to leave her life of sin because Jesus knows something. Jesus knows that every sin comes wrapped in a consequence. Like every sin causes something in our lives to just die a little bit in our life. If you just wanna get practical about sin, sin comes prepackaged with a penalty. 
I mean, you think about your life and you think about things that you have done or that have gone wrong, you know that there's a penalty that comes along with that. Lust and porn, what does it do? It kills proper view of, of the opposite sex. Lying and gossip, what does it do? It kills trust. Addiction, what does it do? It kills our mind and it kills our body. Anger, what does it do? Slander, what does it do? It kills peace in our life. Sin over time kills our conscience. What used to be, I wouldn't do that, comes less. Sin ultimately over time will kill your mind, your body, your relationships, your self-respect, your family, your marriage, your self-control. Sin has the power to kill an entire culture. And what Jesus did is he looked at this woman and he said, leave your life of sin. Why? Not because I'm gonna get you, not because God's gonna get you, but because sin already has you. Not because I wanna punish you, but because sin is already punishing you. He's looking at this woman and saying, you were caught in your sin and it's destroying your relationships. You were caught in your sin and it's destroying your reputation with all of these people. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus looks at us, and when it comes to sin, Jesus does not look at us and say, I want to condemn you. Jesus looks at us and he says, I want to save you. I want to save you from yourself. I don't want to catch you in sin. I want to protect you from sin. I want to protect you from the consequences of your sin eternally, but I actually want to protect you from the consequences of your sin right now. And when Jesus looks at this woman, his tone changes. And how do we know his tone changes? Because a few days later, he goes to a cross and he dies for that woman's adultery. And he goes to a cross and he dies for your sin and he dies for my sin. And you know the tone changes. It is not a condemning tone. You know the tone changes. When a guy goes to the cross and dies for you, you don't have to wonder where you stand with that guy. And I think there's a whole lot of us that wonder where do we stand with God because of our sin. And God is saying, where you stand with me, I showed you. You see, at the cross, he did the same thing for us that he did for the woman. When we're exposed with all of our sin, he stands up there and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And you wanna get really practical on why God hates sin. Jesus does hate sin, but here's the reason why he hates sin. Because sin kills things in our life. And sin already killed Jesus. And he's saying, why are you letting the things that, that you're doing wrong, the sins in your life, kill good things that God wants to give you? Jesus looks at us and he says, sin not. Why? Ultimately, because sin will cause you to hate you. See, you felt that feeling that I felt before. When we sin, when we give in to temptation, and what do we do on the other side of that temptation? We wonder, why did I do that? And we get angry at ourselves and we hate ourselves for this, those things. Sin causes us to hate us. And some of us, we take it a little bit further and we say, man, I, I felt judged by the church and I felt judged by other Christians. Some Christians may have judged you. But a lot of times what happens is it's not the church judging us or our Christian friends judging us. They're just a reminder of the things that we don't like about ourselves when we are in our sin, so we avoid the church and we avoid other Christians because we've given in to that sin. And what Jesus says is go and leave your life of sin. He says sin not because sin should not be your master. The book of Romans says sin is not your master. 
And some of us feel like, man, we're just trapped in those things. And some of us would say, Sean, it's, you don't understand, man, it's, this is hard. Like, I, it's so much easier. You're making it sound so easy. This is actually hard. Well, it is hard. It is hard because it's a whole lot easier to get entangled in something than to get unentangled in something, right? But what Jesus says is when Jesus died on the cross, sin's grasp on us died with him. And you can actually choose, if you want to, to get rid of those sins. It is hard, it is difficult, but what he says is you can choose to let go of those things and God's Holy Spirit will help you. You just have to choose. And so my question today would just be this. For those of you at the Frederick campus, for those of you watching online, for those of you sitting right here, my question for you would be, what is your sin? Like that's an awkward question, but I'd ask you, what is your sin? Because you have it and I have it. And what Jesus knows is he knows that there is sin in our life that's actually killing us. It's killing relationships. It's killing self-control. It's killing self-respect. It's killing marriages. It's killing reputations. It's killing integrity. And so Jesus looks at us and he says, what is your sin? Not so he can get us, but so he can free us. And what he says to us, every single one of us, is he says, why don't you just name it? And why don't you actually choose today to leave your life of sin? And for some of you, it, it may be something really big in your life. For others, you might be saying, I don't know what that really is, but every single one of us has something that is causing distance between us and God. Every single one of us has something that is causing distance between us and other people, whether it be gossip, whether it be dishonesty, whether it be laziness, whether it be sexual sin, whether it be adultery, whether it be greed, whether it's just flat out selfishness, there's something in our life that Jesus is saying, man, it's killing something in you and you may not even know it. Some of you, it's killing something in you and you know it. And so the question would be is if you know those things are hurting you and harming you, why don't you let go of it today? Why don't you let go? You might say, well, I'm scared to let go and I don't know if I can let go and I've been here before and I go back to do those things. Well, Jesus said, I, I know you will mess up. And what I did is I forgave you beforehand. Philip Yancey says that Jesus took an incredible risk by announcing your forgiveness ahead of time. But your forgiveness was not a one-time walk up these steps, take your sacrifice and have to come back and do it all again. It was a one-time Jesus walk down those steps out to the cross, stretch out his arms and say, I have defeated sin once and for all. And all you have to do is choose to put your faith in me and ask forgiveness of your sins and you will be washed whiter than snow. So today, what is your sin? Today could be the moment that you acknowledge it that you choose to do something about it, that you ask forgiveness for it, that you begin to walk away from it. You don't go back to him. You don't go back to her. You don't go back to that thing. And you begin to say, God, I know this is killing something in me. Would you help bring life? That woman lived with some consequences of her sin, but she lived knowing that there was a man named Jesus that didn't condemn her. He urged her to walk a different path that was better. 
And he might just be urging you to walk a different path that is better today. And here's the thing, if you go to Jerusalem and you go to the temple and you go to the southern steps and you walk up the southern steps and you get to the edge of the wall of the temple, there's no gate anymore. There's no place to enter and go in. It's been bricked up. It's been walled up. Like it's just one big wall. There's no entry point anymore. Why? Because just a, just a little bit of a walk from there, Jesus went to a cross and he died for your sins so you don't have to make that walk anymore. That all you have to do today is just run to the Father and say, Jesus, would you forgive my sins? And he will receive you and say, I condemn you no more. You're free. So walk now with me. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing a song to end all three campuses. We're gonna sing Run to the Father. And I think Run to the Father is just like this declaration of remembering exactly what Jesus in that mo did in that moment. He did not condemn, he urged. And today during this moment, he's saying, run to me. Like you can run away from something else and you can run to me and you can have something so much better. And so what you may just wanna do during this time is while I pray, you may wanna pray and just say, God, would you just forgive me of my sin? And if you place your faith in Jesus and you declare him as, as your savior, he says that by your faith, you will be healed. Maybe you do that in that song. Maybe you do that while I pray. Maybe you come up with our prayer team after. But today, every single one of us should be praying a prayer of saying, God, I'm coming to you. Would you help me get rid of this? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful for this story because I feel like there have been moments in my life where I've messed up and it's been out there for everybody to see. And, and in that moment, man, I, did, I didn't, I don't know if I felt condemned, but I felt wrong. I felt dirty. Just so very aware of my sin. And Father, I just thank you that you have a posture toward us that is open arms, that is not, I condemn you, but I receive you. And if you receive us, it doesn't matter what anybody else says about us. And so Father, I pray that in this moment right now, there'd be some people that offload some sin, that offload some dishonesty, that offload some sexual sin, that offload some lack of integrity, that offload some greed and some selfishness, whatever it may be. And Father, I know that there may be some consequences of those sin in this world that may follow them for a little bit. But Father, I pray that it'll be the first step to the life that you want to the heart that is free, to the mind that is free, to a heart that is free to begin to serve you without fear of what they've done. And so God, as we sing, remind us that we can run to the Father any and every time that we want, that you receive us, you do not condemn us, that you love us. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice. It's in his name that we pray, amen.